When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special D-Rays Bay podcast in which we will be joined by none other than the Rays GM, Peter Bendix, in his first official D-Rays Bay sit-down since he became the general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays. I'm joined by Brett Rutherford. Hello, Brett. Hey, Danny. That was exciting. I know it's becoming, I guess, like an annual tradition here. We had the GM last year on when the GM was Eric Neander, and this year we get to talk to the new GM, Peter Bendix. Hopefully that's not a trend for him. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully it's not like a, what is it? Not in Harry Potter defense of the defense against the dark arts teacher. Just oh yeah, it just rotates uh, every year now moving forward. I hope not. It's all right. He's got better hair than uh, Severus Snape. Um, Peter's great. Uh, I've had the good fortune of knowing him for a long time because he actually used to be a writer at SB Nation uh, under R.J. Anderson at Beyond the Box Score, and it's been a joy to see him. Uh, start with the race as an intern and rise up the ranks to where he is today. Uh, This was a really fun conversation because I don't think we knew how long he had to talk to us. And so we kind of went through the questions by order of our own priority and what we were interested in asking about. Um, When we scheduled this interview, we did not know that Austin Meadows was about to get traded or that Josh Lowe was about to be promoted to the big leagues. Um, So we addressed those things up front. But Peter was very gracious with his time, and we were able to talk through pretty much the entire roster, except for Jason Adam, who I uh, intentionally skipped. And there was so much interesting with the roster construction, and I think that was why it was great to get, you know, Peter's insight. And, you know, this is kind of a first for him. This last year was really his first year, I think, more in the the public eye, doing more interviews. And that's kind of led to him, you know, becoming general manager, where I think he's going to be in the public eye a lot more. And so I'm glad we kind of got to, you know, uh, twist his ear a little bit. We got to try to press him to see if there was some secret sauce to pitcher acquisition. Uh, and you'll see whether or not he uh, took the bait on those questions. Uh, also got to ask him if there were any prospects he was excited about. And he did answer that question when I did not expect to. So I hope there's a lot of things in this interview that are compelling and interesting and, and span not only the majors, but the minors as well. And how do you turn a hundred win team into another hundred win team when there's not a lot of work to be done? Should we get right into it? So, yeah. Please enjoy. Let's go. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, so we've seen so many videos online of prospects being told they they got the call and they're going to be starting with the big leagues or, or, or tweets that are celebrating Josh Lowe getting promoted to the majors. And I'd love to get into that decision. But first question, how did you get the news you were being promoted to GM? Was it a, was it a phone call? You know, was it was there a surprise in the in the general manager's office? How did it go down? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, second of all, I'm just glad it wasn't recorded because I don't think I'd want that to be out in the public for my reaction. But uh, no, it, was, it wasn't anything terribly exciting. Um, it was Eric telling me in his office uh, of 
future plans for a few different things. And one of them was that I was going to be promoted to general manager. Um, and when he said that, I don't think it really registered for me. And I'm not really sure that it registers for me right now, but it's, it's a really cool honor. That's awesome. Well, has it been like a, uh, an easy transition? Uh, so here's, here's what I'm imagining. There's one of two things. Either you guys were already operating this way and the titles just moved to reflect the reality of the situation or you got thrown into the fire and it's like, oh crap. <laughs> it was a little bit of both. I don't think it was a large departure from how we were operating before, uh, but there's certainly more responsibility and a little bit of a change in what I was doing. Uh, I expect that will be a little more apparent during the season as I think a lot of the things that I'll be doing are gonna be much more to do with the major league team on the day-to-day in a way that I was helping with before, but wasn't kind of the person more in charge of that. And Eric is still going to be around and Eric is still the final say in a lot of things, but just to have a little bit more responsibility and oversight on the day-to-day during the season, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. What do those day-to-day responsibilities consist of that you say you're going to take more, more charge of this season? There's so much just management and oversight of the major league team and everything going on there. So that's roster decisions and the fun stuff that, gets reported publicly and, you know, how many times we're going to send up and down Lewis head and things like that. But there's also a lot of just kind of day-to-day people management of keeping a bunch of people online, keeping everybody happy, answering questions about various things, everything from why we're making decisions on the field to who do I see about this, you know, leaking toilet. And uh, there's so many things like that, that, they're not terribly exciting, but they need to kind of go somewhere. And so I'm looking forward to just participating in that more and kind of having a little bit more responsibility on, on all of those things from the, the fun things to the kind of mundane things that need to get done. Well, so the Lewis head situation. So Neander got to leave his uh, thumbprint on the game writ large. And now there's a, a rule changes happening across baseball. I think that happened to Friedman as well. What are you excited to do that's going to force Major League Baseball to change the rules to stop you from doing it further? You know, I think over the past 10 or 15 years that I've been with the Rays, we lead the league in either memos or rule changes that are designed to (laughs) pass something that we were doing. So we take a lot of pride in that. But (laughs) I don't know. I was hoping that the first thing that officially we could do after after I was named GM was sign Freddie Freeman. That would have been a pretty cool way to, to start out. That would have been cool. And uh, it feels like a little bit of a departure from the previous era. That could have been the entrance to the Bendix era. It was very exciting to hear you guys in on the sweepstakes or potentially even the highest bidder. Yeah, that was um, a different, different process than we were accustomed to being in. Uh, but, you know, when, when there's an opportunity to get in on somebody like Freddie Freeman, we have to take our best shot. It seems like when you already have a 100-win club, it needs to be a difference maker to actually move the needle because the floor is potentially already so high for the quality of team. And when I was considering that, it almost seemed like this was a Nelson Cruz. This was the kind of bat that could represent that kind of game change, but Nelson Cruz left. So was, was that, is that as easy of an equation as it feels like in my mind that we don't have Nelson Cruz anymore. We need a game changer to, to replace that or to make the same kind of impact. Was there any consideration that way? I think you're right that when we have a strong club, it's harder to upgrade. And the the way that we've built this club is with depth and with having a lot of interesting and exciting young players that need to play. 
And so there's only so many places where you can truly upgrade and not have it come at the expense of somebody that you really like, who's really good, or somebody that is eventually just going to need to get a shot to see what they can do. And I think that kind of offense first profile is one of the few places where it's a little bit easier to upgrade. Of course, it's always very hard to find offense first players. Um, hmm. But, you know, it's, it's a great problem to have. I wouldn't call it a problem even to have a difficult time really finding upgrades that are meaningful enough that we're willing to state a player who's otherwise scheduled to play. I want to go back to the cruise trade because, because Danny, you mentioned, you mentioned the cruise trade and there was another player involved in that deal, Calvin Fauché. And I know we at D-Rays Bay were, were very intrigued with that acquisition. Can you kind of take us back to that trade, what you guys saw in Calvin Fauché and, and what role you could expect him to, to pitch in going forward? Yeah, we had a, a grand master plan. So we had Colin Poche, and now we get Calvin Poche. And we were going to complete the trifecta by trading for Garrett Crochet. But unfortunately, I'm not sure that's going to happen now. But that was, that was the primary plan there. Um, in all seriousness, though, um, he was somebody that we identified liking the stuff a lot. Um, and, you know, it, not exactly the driving piece in the trade where you're acquiring Nelson Cruz. Uh, but when we have the opportunity to add a pitcher, when two are being sent the other direction with some interesting ingredients, it kind of helped balance things out for us. I guess to speak to the to Brett's question a little bit further, it seemed like once Fauché was acquired, he became something different almost immediately. Uh, as if he went from being a reliever to a starter in the minors or that maybe his stuff got started getting tweaked. Uh, and I guess the the question behind the question is, was this like a computer algorithm that spit out like, we know how to change this guy or we can give him a, a tweak to his breaking ball and that makes him a targeted acquisition? Uh, I guess that's the the question, like what made him so enticing and was the approach different right after his acquisition? It's a big fastball and a really big breaking ball, but I don't think we're the only people who know that. I think that's that's something that's pretty apparent when you look at the data. And as somebody with that kind of stuff, it's hard to find. Sometimes it's as simple as just a change of scenery, just new voices in his ear that you never know what direction that's going to go. And there's certainly no guarantee that it's going to be positive, but our pitching group is really good um, at taking guys with great ingredients and kind of helping them harness their stuff. It's not always going to work, but he was somebody with great ingredients. He hadn't had a lot of success. And sometimes that change of scenery thing is real. Well, uh, so this was a really, ex we scheduled this interview, not knowing that you were about to make a whole bunch of changes at the major league level. And uh, we just talked about acquiring uh, offensive first players, but you actually just traded away an offensive first player. So uh, th this is so fresh and it's so new. Maybe you've even only given like one quote, but the Austin Meadows trade. How long was that percolating for you? And when it comes to roster construction, is what's the what's the equation there? Because we just talked about the difference maker of acquiring, but you're giving up a 30 home run, 100 RBI bat, and without getting a major league piece today, like a one for one swap on the 26 slash 28 man roster. So what was the calculus in giving up on Austin Meadows right now? Well, I wouldn't say it was giving up on him, but I understand what you mean. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we listened on all incoming calls and we listened on our outfielders this offseason. I guess it's still technically the offseason. 
Um, and we have a lot of outfielders and teams know that we have depth in that area. And so teams are, you know, asking about players where there's surplus or where there's depth. And so we, we listened to those calls and we weren't looking to move him. Uh, it was just a case where in this particular situation, we really like Isak uh, Paredes that we got back from the Tigers. The comp B pick that we got back is very helpful for down the road. We think Isak is somebody that has a lot of offensive potential, can play multiple positions on the infield. He's just 23 years old. He hasn't yet had that big league success, but he's had success in the minor leagues. We think he's somebody that's going to help us sooner rather than later, even if he's not starting with the major league club. And then it does open up an opportunity for Josh Lowe. And that's not a one-for-one -one replacement. Uh, he's not going to slide into Meadows' role exactly, but it gives him a spot on the big league club that wouldn't necessarily otherwise be there without something else happening. And we think incredibly highly of Josh. And I think the combination of him and rotating other players through the DH role to get them off their feet, whether that's Randy, whether that's G-Man, whether that's Bilal, Yandi, I think the depth of our club allows us to rotate guys through as guys need a day, as we have specific matchups, that sort of thing, where I think we expect that to offset Austin, um, even though you can't just expect any one player to come in and hit 30 bombs and drive in 100. So that's not the expectation for Josh Lowe. I'm just going to write that down. I mean, if he does that, I think we'd all be thrilled. What, what exactly from Isak Paredes, when you guys were, were looking into him as a prospect, what exactly stood out? Uh, and, and what, you know, what role, because I look at his profile and on the surface, I'm like, okay, this is a player similar to Yanni Diaz. He walks a lot. He can play in different spots in the infield. But what do you guys see his role this year, you know, when he gets those chances at the big league level? I think he has an elite combination of decision-making and contactability, and he's got power in there too. And that power hasn't necessarily come out yet in the way that we think it might, but the combination of decision-making, contact, his age, uh, and then how he's, he's a hard worker. He's gotten a lot better. We expect that he's going to continue to improve. And he can play the infield. He can play shortstop, third base, second base pretty well. And as a right-handed bat, that's kind of an area where we're, we're lacking a little bit. Um, I think the, the comparison offensively to Yandi is a, a reasonable one. Um, and I think with Isak in particular, we hope that there's a little bit more in the bat than what he's shown so far. But even if there isn't, there's a lot of ingredients there to be a really useful player, whether it's in an everyday role, whether it's in a platoon role. He just fits how we like to build our rosters. And he's got a lot of potential growth in front of him. From an offensive profile perspective, he strikes me as the kind of guy who, even though he has not had success that's materialized at the major league level, is someone that at least hits hard stuff really well. And it... I guess, is that the signal and the noise? Is that the canary in the coal mine that this guy is struggling generally at the major league level, but he's hitting the hard stuff? Is that the, the little trick? I think that helps for sure. Um, and I think, you know, we, we reviewed his video. We've had, we asked our coaches for opinions. We asked our player development people for opinions to kind of complement what we see in the performance and the statistics and the hit effects information and all of that. And it's all really positive. He has all of the ingredients there from the swing to the, mechanics to the athleticism coupled with performance all the way up to but not yet in the big leagues and he's only 23 he's young and I think it's easy to get caught up in the performance of somebody who hasn't performed 
and forget their age and kind of that it's not always a linear path to success. So I think there's plenty of ingredients there with him and no guarantees, right? But I think there's a lot of ingredients there that we really liked a lot. Okay, so that was Meadows. I get so a Meadows trade is not surprising per se, especially given the depth of left handed hitting outfielders. But I think if you were to poll the Twitter sphere or something and say, who will the race trade at the beginning of the offseason, I would imagine G Man Choi would have been a popular name. Um, I, he never struck me as the kind of player that had trade value before the National League DH was an option, but now there was a National League DH. And I, I guess personally, I expected that to completely change the trade market and for national teams to all of a sudden have a need for bats. So was G-Man Choi a popular name at all? Can you speak to whether or not he was also in consideration alongside Meadows along the way? Like I said, I mean, we listen on, on all of our players and it's, there are very few players that we don't have conversations about in any offseason, just in our due diligence. I think that's probably true for a lot of teams. I don't want to speak for other teams, but there's mm-hmm. always conversations going on, casual conversations, teams asking about needs, asking about surplus, that sort of thing. And G-Man is someone that we really like. He's someone that we think fits really well in our club. Obviously the personality is so effervescent and all that, and that's really helpful, but he hits right-handed pitchers. He hits them really well. And that fits very nicely in our lineup. He's solid at first base. He's, he's a good guy around the clubhouse. Like that's the type of thing that I think we really appreciate, especially when we're watching it every day up close and personal. And he's probably not going to hit 50 home runs and he's probably not going to lead the lead in batting average, but he does everything pretty well. And at the end of the day, that adds up to a very valuable player. And not every player has their own song that the audience sings. (laughs) Among the players that would hurt to trade, uh, the dudes with songs are probably uh, a no-fly zone. It's one of the best walk-up songs. And when that first happened back in, what was that, playoffs in 2019? For sure. And I that was one of the coolest moments in a while. Well, in, in Gmon, I think I think he also adds to like the the Rays are starting to really become known for this great clubhouse chemistry. And we talked with with Brett Phillips a lot about that. You know, is that something that you guys recruit towards to bring guys into the clubhouse that are going to gel with the guys you already have? Yeah, it's something that's really important. Um, you're with these guys 162 games. You're with them throughout all of spring training. You're with them, hopefully, into the postseason. A lot of them spend time together in the offseason. If you don't at least tolerate the people that you're with, it can be a really negative environment. And I think there's a tremendous amount of credit goes to Cashy, goes to our entire coaching staff, because they set that environment. They create that culture that gets the best out of people. And they set that environment where people can just go worry about baseball and not worry about distractions and be themselves. And it's a lot easier said than done to have that environment. But I think it also then builds on itself because it encourages each people, each person within that environment to act in a way that the environment supports. And that generally is being a good teammate. It's having fun. It's not worrying too much about things outside of just baseball. And I think it lets each person kind of get the best version of themselves. The rotating DH also makes me feel like it's a similar question or a similar culture. You know, Phillips is saying the race set the bar for clubhouse chemistry, but the lack of ego, I feel like is connected to something like a rotating DH. Is that, is that a fair uh, assumption that you kind of need to like check your ego to say like, okay, today I'm the DH, but I understand the bigger picture of that. And it's not a slight against my ability as a defender. 
I hope that's what people think. And I hope that that's part of the culture that we try to create is we want to do what is best for the team and what is best for you, the player. And sometimes those things in your mind might not be the same thing. And we ask you to trust us and we're going to do our best to demonstrate that we care about you. And we care about you more than just as a player. We care about you as a person. And we're not going to ask you to do something that puts you in an uncomfortable spot, that puts you in a spot that's going to be a negative thing for you. And I think that trust hopefully builds up to the point where after they see that we hopefully live up to our word, it's a lot easier to accept something that you might otherwise not want to do, whether that's DHing, whether that's pitching in the sixth inning one day and the eighth inning the next day, whether it's having an opener in front of you, you understand that the entire point of what we're trying to do is win games and that there's no other ulterior motive here. There's no anything else that we're trying to do other than beat, you know, win the best division in baseball. And I think that really goes a long way towards the buy-in and allows guys to hopefully check their ego a little bit, which we all need to do. And it's hard for any, any one of us to do, right? But when you understand that we have the best interest of both the team and the individual at heart, I think doing some of these relatively non-traditional things become a little bit easier. Well, speaking of non-traditional things and different roles, Josh Fleming, we've seen him kind of be a, a jack of all trades the, the last couple of years and how you guys have used him. It looked like this spring he was being built up to be in more of like a pitch every fourth, fifth, or sixth day type of rotation. Now he's going to be you know on the big league club to start the season. He's not in this rotation. What what role do you envision for for Josh Fleming this year? We're incredibly excited about Josh and view him as a starting pitcher. Whether that means he will take the ball in the first inning, I don't necessarily know. But in April, we have stretches of, I believe, 13 consecutive games. And then in May, it's 17 consecutive games, something like that. After a shortened spring training, after a very strange lockout offseason with 162 games to play this season, fewer off days, all of that, we need to take care of our pitching. And the 28-man roster helps with that, but we have a lot of young pitchers who we would want to take care of a little more than an average pitcher in a normal year. And now we're asking them to get built up over short and spring to play 162 and hopefully deep into October. After playing in October last year, we're really going to try to err on the side of taking care of these guys. And I don't know exactly what that means. It's going to be a case by case with each individual guy. But right now, the way we're thinking about it, we need length. We need guys who are capable of throwing multiple innings at one time to get us through the month of April, give us the best chance to win each game, and also take care of the pitchers. And so the plan with Flem right now is he's going to provide length of some kind at some point. And there's going to have to be fluidity to that because we don't know exactly how this is going to play out. But we view him as a starter. We view him as someone who is going to pitch multiple innings at a time. And we're really excited about the progress that he's made this spring. I mean, should we expect a six-man rotation? (laughs) Or is it more, uh, you're not going to commit. That's fine. That's fine. I I just want to know if it's going uh, left, left, left in a row. (laughs) Because uh, I think uh, Topkin said Yarbrough is pitching fifth, and then it turns around. Uh, but then if you stick Fleming in the middle, I'm pretty sure it's going right, 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 left, left, left. That would have been funny. Anyway, I'm I'm still thinking about chemistry, so I'm going to pull it back. 
we would be remiss to to move on from the from the good chemistry and all the good conversation about that and not address uh, Manuel Margot, who I think has risen up as a, a public face of good vibes uh, for the clubhouse. Uh, players calling him Papa is hilarious. Uh, I think he's in charge of the aux cable and the batting cage. Uh, but now he's been also rewarded with uh, an extension. And I would imagine maybe that due diligence gets done with every player to see you know what they're open to and at what price. But um, are you able to share you know, how quickly this Margot extension came about and how you landed on uh, bringing him a multi-year deal? During spring training, um, oftentimes we will at least float the possibility of an extension to a lot of our players in a casual sense, just to get a sense of where their heads are, what they're thinking. Um, And spring training is often a, a good time to do this because everybody's there, everybody's in one place, but it's a fairly casual, relaxed environment for at least a couple of weeks. So it's not a bad time to have these generally casual conversations and they can go in any one of many directions. And with Manuel, um, it's a player that we value tremendously. I think he embodies a lot of the things that we value as a well-rounded player, tremendous defender, tremendous base runner, quality at bats, just he does everything well. And he's somebody that we value a lot for that. And then you layer on top the fact that he's become a clubhouse leader that he helps with the culture. He helps with the great vibes, as you said, and other players look to him and he sets a fantastic example. And all of those things combine in a way that's fairly unique. And so that's kind of what gave us comfort in exploring some of these extensions. And we talked about various things with him um, and it's a commitment and he's committing to us. He's committing to our culture. He's committing to us putting together a competitive team for the future. And we're committing to him by buying out the the free agent years now and understanding that he didn't have to do that. He could have waited and Mm -hmm. seen what his market was. And I wouldn't have blamed him at all if he did that. But he chose to commit to us. And we feel that commitment and we feel that sense of reciprocity of of needing to uh, do everything we can to commit back to him. And I think that is that's not something we take lightly, but it's also not something that we necessarily um, would be willing to do with everybody. And it does get back to that culture and that chemistry piece where when you have a player like him who's so well-respected and also a tremendously talented baseball player, that's how it kind of comes together. So one way you might have left your fingerprints, the first Bendix move uh, in terms of uh, the, the new GM taking over, there's one element to this deal that I'm not sure we've seen in a very long time, and that was a mutual option. I feel like it's always been club options up to this point. And I, I even tried to do a little bit of due diligence before I asked this question. You know, has there been mutual options like dating back to Andrew Friedman? And I'm not sure. I I didn't remember any and I didn't find any when I did a quick Google. So, I, I mean, help me out. Is this the is this the Peter Bendix era taking over? We do mutual options now. Trying to think. I trust your research. I would have sworn we had done, done one in the past, but I guess not. Our resident historian at D-Rays Bay, Adam Sanford, said the, the one he could find was Travis Lee way back in the double race days. All right. Yeah, I guess that's my I guess that's my signature now, the mutual option. I guess there's <laughs> worse things to be known for. It was just interesting to see an option arise that kind of gave the player some you know, autonomy in the decision. Mm-hmm. 
because in the past, I mean, Brandon Lau's contract, whatever it might be, it's just a string of team options or club options rather. And, you know, it's a unique situation. Manny was further into his career than some of the other players that we've signed extensions to. And that, that changes the calculus for, I think, both the player and the team. That's fair. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so back to back to Swiss Army knives. I think it's interesting because if this were a chaotic offseason, we would be asking a lot about like, okay, giant new acquisition here, giant new acquisition there. Uh, and I think instead we've got more periphery stuff that's happening. Um, you know, there's one key reliever, one key starter, and there was the trade of Joey Wendell, and I think we should touch on all three. Um, but I think the one that's coming to my mind first is uh, the departure of Colin McHugh and how he's being replaced in the roster. And I think there's, well, so there's two departures, excuse me. So Waka and McHugh are out and enter uh, Brooks and Corey Kluber. And I'm interested to know if those are one-to-one as well. You know, we've been talking about one-to-one swaps because it's such an already built and already established roster. Uh, you know, Jordan Luplo for Harold Ramirez. Yes, it makes sense. You have a type, you're a right-handed hitting outfielder. We might make play first base and, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. You just swapped out a piece. Uh, but in these two situations, it was interesting because, uh, and one of our writers, Cole, uh, kind of did analysis where it seemed like Colin McHugh and Corey Kluber share a lot of similarities in their stuff, even in, uh, you know, their their physicality and the way that they pitch. Um, can you, uh, help us understand if it was that simple? Like here we have Colin McHugh, we put him in the system and it spit out Corey Kluber, or, uh, is it, we've been tracking Corey for a long time and he's incredible. And the stars finally aligned to land him. You know, we tried to get him before we went to the Yankees. Uh, let's start with Kluber. How did that come about? And is there any, uh, uh, <laughs> accuracy to the, uh, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. Colin McHugh equals Corey Kluber. <laughs> well, you said it well. We had been tracking him for a long time and think very highly of him and tried to get him before he went to the Yankees. And finally, the stars aligned in such a way that it made sense for, for him and for us. Um, and especially with, with Glasnow being out and wanting to add another veteran presence in our rotation, I think we had a lot of success with Charlie Morton and having kind of that, that older pitcher who has some health concerns but has a lot to like. I think we're well suited to have somebody like that kind of thrive in our situation. Um, and I think it's, it's a coincidence that he kind of looks and pitches like Colin McHugh. That wasn't something we were aiming to replace one for one, but I think that type of profile is also one that we appreciate and value a lot that for as much as we love the Pete Fairbanks throwing 101 miles an hour with a absolute hammer, give me that all day, every day. We also really appreciate the guys who really know how to pitch with what they have. And I think that applies to both Corey and Colin McHugh and others. It applies to Ryan Yarbrough, it applies to Fleming, the guys who don't throw as hard, but get out. Brooks Rayleigh in a lot of ways is like that too. And when there's a guy who has solid breaking ball, good off-speed pitches, 
mixes and matches, moves the ball around. We've seen that those guys get outs. Now, you don't just need power in order to be able to get outs. And so that worked for Colin McHugh. And I hope and expect it will work for Corey Kluber. It wasn't something where we said, all right, Colin McHugh's out. We need someone like him. But I think we do appreciate that profile of pitcher a lot. So it's a coincidence. Coincidence. <laughs> okay, so the other name there is Brooks Raley, and you rewarded him with two years, ten million, and he is not a player who necessarily would have stood out in the in the stat sheet. But you're looking at a situation where guys like Pete Fairbanks and Nick Anderson and your top relievers are being removed, and uh, targeting Brooks Raley doesn't necessarily sound like uh, the way to compensate for the loss of your highest leverage arms. Can you help us understand the context for for his signing? Yeah, he was somebody that we just identified as someone who had a lot of ingredients in place to be an excellent reliever. And as a left-handed pitcher, I think it's something that we were hoping to add to our bullpen. Um, and he's somebody who we think we can use in a lot of different situations. He had you know, tremendous walks, tremendous strikeouts. He induced a lot of weak contact. And I think there's a lot of room to uh, get better results moving forward, or at least give up fewer runs. And we can never have enough pitching. You can just never have enough pitching. And every time you think you have enough pitching, you're wrong. You really don't. And that's the way our roster is built. That's the way our club is built. And I think when we have the opportunity to add somebody that we think can be a high leverage reliever, we had to jump at it. Was he the first official signing of the Bendix era? I'm trying to remember the timing. It was before anything was announced. Yeah. Ah, fine. <laughs> and Brooks Raley called the Rays the mecca of pitching, right? I mean, that's high praise from a guy. Are you guys seeing that that interest when you're going into the free agent market from other – I think this is a recent thing after guys like Morton and Colin McHugh who are very well respected amongst their peers have, have, have been here and spent time here. Are you guys seeing that that level of interest maybe in pitchers that are looking for a new a new home in the Rays, coming to the Rays and, and, and coming to the mecca of pitching? I think that there's there's a lot of respect for our pitching development, our pitching coaches, Kyle Snyder, Stan Borowski do an incredible job. And I think that more than just the results that we've gotten, I think the reputation of how those guys treat their pitchers and how much they truly, truly care about each individual guy, the NRI who comes to spring training that has never met Kyle before, who is not slated to make the club, he cares about them just as much as he cares about any big leaguer. And I think that is something that I hope is starting to spread around the game and is something that players value. They want to come to a place where they're appreciated, where they know they're going to get individualized attention and that we're going to hopefully put them in the position for them to succeed. And whether that success is here or elsewhere, if, if they come here and they do well and then they go elsewhere and they continue to do well, that's great. I think that's really a wonderful thing for them. It's a wonderful thing for us. So I think we do see pitchers who are happy to come here, pitchers who want to come here. I think we sometimes see pitchers who would rather not come here because of all the other pitching that we have here, which I totally <laughs> understand as well. Uh, but the, I, I take it as a big compliment that pitchers want to come here primarily because they know they're going to get treated well and that they are going to have the opportunity to improve. So the, the big NRI was Jason Adam. He wasn't an NRI. He was a RI. Oh, excuse me. Uh, yes, please correct me. Um, 
I guess was Maza an NRA? I'm yeah, trying to Chris remember Maza, who on the I was going to ask about Maza. Sorry, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the guys was an NRA and he, and he came in, but that Maza didn't feel right in my head because he's just been here. Yeah. So what was that conversation like to bring him back, to bring a, bring a guy like Chris Maza back? I think that is also a testament to Kyle to stand to our entire pitching group that he wanted to come back here, that he knew that this was a place that despite what had happened so far, and, you know, he was, he was a very – a helpful pitcher for us, but he thought he had room to grow and get better and that we would be able to help him do that. I think right now he is in as good of a place as he might have ever been in his career. And I think he feels great about that. Kyle's really excited about him. Um, and we'll see how it plays out, but this is, this is a really good version of Chris Maza and we're excited about that. I mean, yeah, it, <laughs> I'm excited about a good Chris Maza too, just because the, the trade return uh, kind of makes it feel a little better. Those are the kinds of things where I, it, the conspiracy theorists, if I could put my tinfoil hat on, it's like, okay, handshake agreement. Okay, you're going to be off the roster for a little bit, but you still have a place here and you can't answer this question. So it's not actually a question. I'm going to move on. Uh, Jason Adam. So, uh, I mean, we're just hitting all of the, well, who's the elder statesman now? I, I want to back up. I'm looking at the bullpen and who who's the gray beard because Chaz Rowe is out. Uh, and multiple guys say they have the Chazro slider now, but in my brain heading into like last season, I would think like Chazro is the guy who's, you know, kind of keeping all the lackeys in line and being like, this is how the bullpen goes. So who is that guy now in the race bullpen? Boy, how long have we had Andrew Kittredge? Feels like he's been around for a while. Or his fifth or sixth season. Oh, 18. He, he, he debuted with the Rays. You want to talk about a case of, of our pitching development, getting, deserving so much credit and Kit himself deserving so much credit. When we traded for him, he was throwing, I believe, 90. And he was a fairly vanilla reliever with fairly vanilla results. And even a year ago, he was an NRI. He pitched really well. He made the club. And next thing you know, he's throwing 98. And he makes an all-star team. And he's got a one-something ERA. I mean, that is so cool. He was not a top prospect, not a highly regarded guy for most of his career. And the fact that he's both stayed healthy, done what he's done, and is still somebody that we rely on for high leverage innings, who's still throwing absolute gas. I don't know. I, that, that's a really cool story to me. And it's a great story. It's a testament to him and his hard work. It's a testament to our pitching development. And it's just, it's really cool to see him have that kind of success. When I've had the opportunity to be credentialed, Kittredge is one of those guys who did stand out as a hard worker. You know, you'd see him there with all the the various driveline weighted balls, you know, in his locker. And he's definitely going through his uh, his routines and putting the work in over time. So it, it is thrilling to see that well rewarded. So, Danny, when you asked who the gray beard was, it was literally the guy with the graying beard. Andrew, listen, <laughs> listen. <laughs> I can't. Some of the questions have to be softballs or else Peter's going to hate us. No, right. um, uh, Kittredge is one of my favorites as well, ever since the, the all-star call happened. And he, I believe, was at a rainforest cafe in Orlando when he got the phone call that he needed to get on a plane and go to the all-star game. Are you looking forward to now being responsible for making any of those phone calls? Like, hey, sorry <laughs> to bother you on vacation. We'll see. I don't know. Eric might take the good phone calls and leave me the bad ones. We'll see how that goes. Man. I was going to ask. <laughs> firing someone from the rainforest cafe has to be a lot worse <laughs> I, i've been to that rainforest cafe and it keeps you in a good mood no matter what news you just got so well it's because you're at the animal <laughs> kingdom right they got roller coasters 
Okay, so the only big move I feel like we haven't talked about. Well, I did kind of skip over Jason Adams. So if you if you're passionate about talking about Jason Adams, I'll give you the opportunity. Um, but uh, Joey Wendell was traded away, and uh, there's a couple different elements to that. But it feels now, in retrospect, similar to the Austin Meadows situation, where you have a, a dynamic prospect who needs a place on the roster, but is blocked if not for injury or a, a trade away of a player. And so Joey Wendell departs and it seems like Taylor Walls gets the opportunity to step in and, and take over the Joey Wendell role. Is that a fair reflection of that situation? Yeah, I think that's fair. I don't think we expect Taylor to be everything that Joey was, but I think he's earned the opportunity to get more playing time. And between him and Yandi, hopefully getting a little more playing time and having some depth underneath them in Durham as well, I think we're, we're confident that we'll be able to fill in Joey's big shoes. Um, but trading Joey Wendell was one of the most difficult moves that I think we've made in I don't know how long. The mm. Joey Wendell, the human being, is A++ to the point that he might be one of my favorite people that I've encountered who's a player. And to trade him away, it was just, it was brutal. And I think it's going to work out well for Joey because he's going to a place where he's really valued and he has an opportunity to keep playing and keep just developing his career. Um, and we're excited about Taylor Walls. We're excited about Yandi. Obviously, a full season of Wander. I think that's going to work out well for everybody. But I'm going to miss Joey Wendell, the person. Joey Wendell, the father, Joey Wendell with his humor. I'm going to wish Miss Cash calling him Mendel. The, the look on Cash's face whenever he saw Joey Wendell walking around, he was just so happy that Joey Wendell was on the team. And so we're, we're all going to miss that a lot. Joey Wendell, the father, is a really interesting point. Um, one of my core memories of Joey Wendell is uh, another time that I'm on a credential, I'm, I'm visiting uh, at Tropicana Field, and he was kind of waiting to take his turn in the batting cage, but he was close enough that I could ask him a question. And I had a question at the time. And I walk up to start talking to him, and he looks at me, he's like, Hey, do you have kids? And I was like, Yeah, man. And uh, he's like, Let me see a picture. And then we just start talking about fatherhood. And, you know, he clearly had his own kids on his mind. And uh, we got to talk about how that grounds you and helps you figure out what's important in life. And uh, and so it's interesting that you said Joey Wendell, the father, because that's also kind of how I think of him as well. So I appreciated that. That's great. Yeah, we're, we'll miss, miss him a lot. I kind of want to talk about Taylor Walls. We're, we're both Florida State guys. So that that adds to the uh, the equation. My wife is too. So she's a big Taylor Walls fan. And, and Taylor Walls, who has been known within the Rays system as an infield Kevin Kiermeyer. I mean, that's that's extremely high praise. That's a big; those are big names to throw around. But you guys have a shortstop, Wander Franco, who, as I think it's pretty fair to say, he is the shortstop. How do you utilize a player like Taylor Walls, who's been known as the infield Kevin Kiermeyer that we saw play some incredible shortstop at the big league level last year? How do you utilize him on a roster that has Wander Franco? I think. The fact that he's a phenomenal infielder isn't just limited to shortstop. And we've seen the value of playing excellent defenders at positions besides just shortstop. And I think Joey Wendell was a phenomenal defender. And I think Joey Wendell was a really good shortstop when he played there, but he was also an incredible third baseman and an incredible second baseman when he played. 
played there. And I think we have similar hopes for Taylor. And defense is incredibly important at every position. And yes, shortstop defense, you get more opportunities than you might at third base or second base. Certain traits are a little more valued, but that doesn't mean that the defense in other positions isn't valuable. It might be 90 or 95% as valuable shortstop, but that's still a tremendous amount of value there. And I think the fact that Taylor is such a great defender, the fact that he will play shortstop on days that Wander isn't playing, the fact that he has uh, ability at second and third in addition to short, can bounce around, is comfortable all those positions. He's a glue that allows us to do a lot of different things with the roster. And he's a switch hitter and he gives great at bats. He does everything well. And I think those types of players are what allow us to be, to be good every year. If you have a lot of players who just do everything well, it kind of offsets not necessarily having somebody who hits 50 home runs or does anything exceptionally well. Having players who don't have weaknesses is really, really useful. From your perspective, is, is it a uniquely raised problem to have so many prospects that need transitioned into the big leagues? Or uh, like, are we spoiled by this? Is this, um, or is this a competitive disadvantage that you are constantly needing to transition to the, to the unproven next uh, group of players who, who need to come in and establish themselves because their clocks are ticking? Like, how does this, does this feel like an advantage or a disadvantage or maybe a blessing and a curse? What is, what is this like for you to make these decisions? All of the above. It's, it's our lot in life. We know that we're not going to go sign Garrett Cole. We know that we're not going to be playing on the top tier free agents. And we know that in order to be successful, especially in this division, with the Red Sox, Yankees, and Blue Jays spending what they are, with the Orioles developing their farm system, we need young players and we need them to be good right away. And that is a, that's the key to our success. And if we can complement those young players with a Corey Kluber here and a Brooks Whaley there, that's what we're trying to do. But ultimately this team is going to live and die with the success of its young players. And we need to have a constant flow of young players because you never know how things are gonna go. You never know when something's not gonna go right for a certain player or just baseball randomness, unpredictability happens. You always need more young players and you need them to constantly be transitioning to the big leagues. And then when you do have somebody who's a star, we need to try to keep them as long as we possibly can. And that's our goal. And that doesn't always work out in that way. And that's kind of our lot in life. We need to have one eye on the present and two eyes in the future all the time. But I also think that's something that prevents us from having an extended period where we're non-competitive and having to do any kind of severe teardown or severe rebuild. By doing that, by having the eye on the future and the present at the same time, it, it allows that. And we need guys like Josh Lowe to come up and be successful. We need guys like Taylor Walls to come up and be successful. Obviously, Wander is a huge part of it. And we've had that wave before. KK was a completely unproven young guy when we got him, right? Willie Damas came through here. Brandon Lau was totally unproven. These guys have been able to hit the ground running. And we need that from everybody. And so I think right now, Josh, Taylor, some of these guys who have yet to really establish themselves, they're the next man up. And hopefully there's waves behind them too. Are there any guys that um, you think the industry is not giving their dues in the minors that you want to shine a spotlight on that could be part of the next wave? I don't know about how the industry feels about some of these guys, but some of the- I'm assuming you're reading the trades. 
<laughs> some of the position players that we have down in Durham uh, and even in, into Montgomery are really exciting. Um, obviously, we saw Bruhan last year. He's a dynamic player. He does everything well. Another switch hitter. He's played some outfield. He's a tremendous infield defender. Great eye at the plate. Great contact skills. And he started to hit the ball hard. And so I think we're excited to see his continued development, see if there's a little more power to unlock there. And I'm sure he will have an opportunity at some point this year. Um, I think underneath AAA, there's a crop of position player prospects. The infield at Montgomery, I believe, has Curtis Mead, Greg Jones, Brett Wisely, Austin Shenton, and Evan Edwards, which is as good of an infield at any level of minor leagues that we've had since I've been here. Um, we have pitching prospects coming in Taj Bradley and Seth Johnson, uh, Tommy Romero's in AAA, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some guys, but that group is kind of the wave that we're most excited about right now. Um, and there's a lot of guys in Durham too that might not have the notoriety of some of those guys, but players like Tristan Gray and Miles Mastroboni and Ryan Bolt, they've been around for a while, but they're ready to take that next step. And I'm, I'm excited to see what they can do with kind of another full year of relatively normal minor league schedule. Um, those guys kind of get lost in the shuffle, but I think those guys are, they're ready to take that step. And we've seen a lot of improvement. We saw Renee Pinto kind of come from a completely unheralded prospect to somebody who's on the 40 man that we looked him in the eye when we sent him down and we said, man, we are completely confident with you catching big league pitching and your, mm -hmm. your time will come. Ford Proctor was an infielder and now he is a full-time catcher on the 40 man showing tremendous promise behind the plate with a pretty good bat. And I think that, that position player group, some of those guys aren't going to be as good as we hope. Some of them are hopefully going to be better than we hope. I am not smart enough to tell you who's going to be who, but there's a lot of talent within that group. Are, have we reached the new normal? Have we, are we post-COVID in terms of uh, operations yet? Almost. Not quite. Most things feel pretty normal. There's still you know, some MLB guidelines and policies in place that we're abiding by. Um, so it's not completely the same as it was before COVID, but certainly compared to the beginning of last year, it is much closer to normal. COVID forced every organization to adjust these, these last two seasons. What did you guys in, in the front office learn about the way you do things on a, on a day-to-day -day basis that you've, that you've learned because of the adjustments you had to make that you can carry with you now and that we're almost in the clear in terms of, of, of COVID protocol or whatnot? And is it work from home Fridays? Yeah. <laughs> work from home every day when you're at home. <laughs> the thing that I'm most proud of that our organization did during COVID, well, there's two things. The first thing that I'm proud of that our organization did was the way that we treated people. And we came through COVID with very minimal negatives towards our employees as we possibly could. And we minimized the things like furloughs. There were, nobody lost their job. That was something we we're really, really proud of. And I'm, I'm proud to be a Ray's employee and to work for Stu and somebody who cares about his employees so much and walked the walk when things got really hard. From a baseball operations standpoint, the thing I'm probably most proud of is we did not have a minor league season, right? And our player development staff was working just as much as they would otherwise over Zoom 
over videos with individualized attention and drills and just tailoring something to whatever the player had in wherever he was sheltering in place and really spending just tremendous amounts of time on player development during COVID. And then we saw the results in 2021. Our farm system took an enormous leap forward at all levels with all types of players, with our mm -hmm. top prospects, with guys who weren't top prospects who became them, with guys who are completely flying under the radar but had amazing years like Jordan Kassar and the guys down in Charleston who won something like 70% of their games. It was absolutely incredible. And I think that's not a coincidence. That is the direct result of the work that was put in during COVID over Zoom, over phone calls, over video by our player development group that showed up as soon as we got back on the field. And that's, I'm incredibly proud of that. Uh, now I'm wondering about the lockout. So you had COVID, you had to figure out how to be remote. And then a lockout happened. You're not allowed to talk to any players. Did you get to take any time off? Did you get to take <laughs> a week? I'm now I'm now a fan of your uh, your 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 Florida State fan wife, right? So like, did she get to see you more during the lockout, or what happened there? We were able to spend more time together, um, especially during December, January, when things are normally a little bit slower. Anyway, uh, we were able to spend some time together. Unfortunately, that was also when COVID was getting a little worse, and that disrupted some mm. of our plans. But yeah, Delta. Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, but we were able to take some trips together. We were able to just spend time together in what I would consider to be slightly more normal hours. We had nights together. We had weekends together. I think by the end of it, she might have gotten a little tired of me. Uh, but I'm not sure she'd <laughs> ever that. But yeah, it, it, that part was nice. Um, and then of course, you know, I started to to miss the frenzy of all the off season. But I'll tell you what, the idea of having some kind of deadline, a trade deadline type thing in the off season, personally love it. I think it's something that was great for the sport to have that kind of action taking place at the end of November with deal after deal. It really brought all attention and eyes to the sport and then deadlines force people to do things and deadlines make things exciting. So also if a deadline gives us a few weeks where we don't have anything transaction wise to worry about, that's not a bad thing either. Peter, were you expecting, like, I think as fans, we were expecting the night that that lockout was lifted, we were going to see the same thing we saw when the lockout began, was the this, like, flurry of deals to come through. Yep. But it took a while. I think Drew Verhagen was the first signing by Detroit. And then you started to see yet a bit of a rush as the week went on. Um, but were you guys expecting that? Or was there just, like, this, like, standoff between all the front offices? Like, who's going to pick up the phone? Who's going to make the yeah, first or, deal? Or was it a frenzy? Was it actually a frenzy? And then, like, we on the sidelines just don't even know the firestorm that's happening now that the lockout's lifted? Because it seemed like the lockout lifted. You just expect all these transactions to pour out. But it didn't happen that way. I expected it to be more of a frenzy than it was. And it was certainly hectic and there was certainly a lot going on, but I did expect that in the first 48 to 72 hours, there would be far more moves and signings than there ended up being. Um, in hindsight, I understand why it was the way it was. There wasn't a deadline, right? Previously, mm -hmm. before the lockout, there was moves end at this time. Now there isn't an actual deadline. There's just a series of events that are happening camp begins, games begin, the regular season begins. Those are kind of artificial deadlines, but nothing that prevents you from actually making a move. And so I think teams were just a little bit more slower moving and taking their time and meticulous than maybe I expected. 
Um, but also you look back at the things that happened over the last few weeks, there's a lot of things that happened in a relatively short amount of time. Sure. Outside of just transactions, there were, I think, across the league, some issues. Some players have to get back into the country, have to find housing in spring training. You know, players had no idea when they were going to report to spring if they were at all. So when that lockout was lifted, other than transactions, was that uh, something that the that the Rays front office that you guys had to deal with was was making sure your players were going to be able to get to Port Charlotte? Yes, uh, that was a, that was more of a frenzy than anything else. Um, as soon as the lockouts lifted, we had communication with our players for the first time in however many days the lockout ended. And so there's all sorts of different communications going from just checking in on their health status, on their families, on just what have they been up to, where have they been? And oh, by the way, you need to be here in a couple of days and you need to find housing in an area where it's fairly difficult to find housing. And there's still a bunch of uncertainty about when we're actually doing things and beginning and all of that. So that was, that was a tremendous frenzy. And our travel director, Chris Westmoreland, Westy, we call him. Um, he was, I think on the phone 24 hours a day at that point, just trying to help arrange flights and cars and houses and families and all of the stuff nobody really thinks about, at least fans don't, I don't think. I certainly didn't before I started working for a team, but that's the stuff that actually matters the most. If you're a player, and you are going to spring training, you are either bringing your family with you or leaving them for six weeks. And that's a very stressful thing. And you literally need a place to live and you need a car and you need some of these logistical things that people kind of take for granted. And now we had 24 hours notice to get all that together for 50 guys, 60 guys. So did you have to drive Shane McClanahan to the, to the ball field every day or uh... Fortunately, I didn't. He, uh, he was able to drive himself. Um, but I do remember one of my jobs as an intern. I think it was an intern. It might have been my first year full time, 10, 11 years ago. Um, no, longer than that. Anyway, 2010 or 2011, I picked up from the airport Jeremy Hellickson and Desmond Jennings for an award ceremony. I think it was the end of season minor league award ceremony. And I remember driving with them in my car, my 2002 Toyota Corolla to from the airport, thinking to myself, please don't crash, please don't crash, please don't crash just the entire time. And we made it there. But um, now I think those guys drive themselves. I'm just imagining you sitting in the driver's seat and then them both sitting like on the on the passenger side and the whole car just kind of like tilting. (laughs) (laughs) We had to even out the weight distribution. I'm looking at my list of questions. I have a very important question that I don't know who else to get the answer from. All right. Who? So we've got a first line and second line already established for catcher and shortstop. Very clear answers, right? Zanino, Mejia. Who's the emergency catcher? I know I want the answer to be G-Man. I don't know <laughs> who it is, but he has professional catching experience in his life. So I'm hoping that it's G-Man. This isn't like established. I just expect this to be like, we all know catcher number three is Brett Phillips because he'll do anything or, or I'm sure I'm projecting. I thought it was Joey Wendell last year. I think it probably would have been at what point Mike Brasso, I think has done it once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. This is a good question. I will have to find out. I'm sure Tash or, or Q or those guys have a good answer for you, but I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head who it would be. I'm sure it would be Brett Phillips if we asked him to. He would volunteer. 
<laughs> well, he did tell us on the podcast that he's going to go talk to Cash about pitching more this season, and maybe not in scenarios in, uh, in which it's a, a normal for a position player to pitch. Oh, I'm sure that conversation is going to go real well. And then what about emergency shortstop? Is that one, is that one clear? Let's say, I'm, I mean, here's what I'm imagining. Uh, Franco's the DH for the day, or, or Walls gets brought in late to give his leg some rest or something. And then God forbid he fouls a ball off his foot or he pulls a hammy and you got to lift him. Who's the emergency shortstop? Same answer. I hope it's G-Man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think both, uh, probably Yandy, Yandy or B-Lau. They both just have a lot of infield experience and um, Yandy's played there, I think before. So I think that would probably be it. That nice. would be a sight for sore eyes. Yandy Diaz with those big biceps, you know, man yes. shortstop. I love that so much. <laughs> Okay, and then my last extremely serious question is, uh, are we going to get Josh Lowe a uh, big boy number on his, uh, on his uniform, or is he really going to rock the 53? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I am just the worst person to ask when it comes to numbers. I don't know. I couldn't name who has more than a few numbers on our team, so I don't know. All I know is that I've learned that if you select the right number and then – a veteran comes in with that number, sometimes you can get a nice Rolex out of things. <laughs> Man, that's a flex. Well, I, I'm just on a first name basis with everyone. How could, how could I be expected to know what number uh, Shane Boz is? <laughs> no, I couldn't, I couldn't have told you when I was 12 years old and the biggest nerdy fan of the Cleveland Indians, I still didn't know anybody's numbers. Man, that was awesome. That was an hour. I think we prepped like an hour of questions for you and, and didn't Perfect. expect more, so... If you want to run, you can. If you got anything you want to talk about, you can. If you want to talk about uh, whether or not Neander's making you wear pullover quarter zips, now is that the uniform? He's got he's got that locked down. Nobody else is allowed to do the quarter zip. I, I just imagine there's a closet in his office at the Trop, and you just like pull back the door, and it's like hanger after hanger of quarter zips that he can just change into. Like Mister Rogers getting out a cardigan. It's just <laughs> Eric rolling into the office, being like, "Which quarter zip will I wear today?" I'm going to miss spring training primarily because we got to wear t-shirt and shorts every day. That was fantastic. Thank you so much to Peter for being so generous with your time. It was a joy to go through the entire Rays roster with you. Well, except for uh, Jason Adam, who I did not ask any questions about. That's on me. Uh, I'm super looking forward to see what uh, he does with this roster mid-year, what kind of transformations are needed to keep this 100-win talent performing at a hundred win level. If there is another Nelson Cruz to be acquired, or if uh, there's any other contract extensions, who knows what might be next. I think by the end of the year, we're going to see Peter and a lot more quarter zips. I think we're going to start to see him uh, transform into the next Eric Neander. Right. And we know, we know he's got those in his closet at the drop. So that's going to do it for today's podcast. Thank you guys for listening. As always, make sure to head on over to draysbay.com for all of the great coverage. If you like what we're doing, rating and reviewing our podcast, if your platform allows it, is the best way to spread what we do to more and more Rays fans. Once again, thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you very soon. 